2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a popular genre of video on the internet. It features a disabled person getting a new prosthetic arm or leg, often with great excitement. But tech and disability writer Britt Young argues that these videos don't show whether the devices are actually useful and what happens in the weeks and months after the unboxing. Unfortunately, these bionic components can be all futurism, no function, as Young herself has discovered. So we're going to spend the hour talking about the reality underlying the whiz-bang of high-tech prosthetics, the ways disabled people's experiences are ignored, and how it might be that our society, as much as any product, is what actually needs to evolve. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the United States, more than 2 million people live with some kind of limb difference. Thousands of children are born without a limb each year. And our guest today, Britt Young, was once one of those children. She's now a writer whose work focuses on technology's impact on marginalized communities. She's also a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley in geography. And over the last year, she's written about her experience with one of the new high-tech prosthetic arms in Input Magazine and IEEE Spectrum. We are caught in a bionic hand arms race, she writes. But are we making real progress? It's time to ask who prostheses are really for and what we hope they will actually accomplish. Each new multi-grasping bionic hand tends to be more sophisticated but also more expensive than the last and less likely to be covered even in part by insurance. We're so glad to have you here in Studio B. Welcome to Forum, Britt.
3: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So can we just...
2: Talk about your most recent experience with a prosthetic arm and sort of when you got it and what it felt like to get it.
3: Sure. Um this was about uh, a couple of years ago, 2019, when I got one of the most high-tech, highly anticipated uh, nicest, most sophisticated arms on the market um, from a German company called Autobach. Um It's called the Bebionic. It's a multi-articulating hand. Mm-hmm. This Wait, is what does that mean? Yeah, that is a um, a myoelectric, so an electric hand that is controlled through um, muscular sensory output through the socket. So you like flex inside that socket mm-hmm. to control an opening clonus mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's multi-articulating in the sense that. Each of the digits on the five-fingered hand will move independently, but you can't control them independently. It's more just how the grasp moves. Moves, huh. So like a grasp will come around a cup and then each finger will come down one at a time and make a um, form-fitting grip around that cup. Wow.
2: And so are there different like grip modes? Like... One for grasping the cup, another for grasping something smaller. Like, how does that work?
3: There's a few different grip patterns, and this is pretty common for these types of high-tech myoelectric hands. Um, And you have to sort of cycle through them. Um, Sometimes you have to, like, do a double flex on uh, the socket to get to... um, a power grip, which is more like a fist. It's a little multi purpose, but then there are precision pinches and then a couple of other grips. I have no idea what they're for.
2: <laughs> I mean, I guess the basic question is that sounds sort of smart, although also very complicated, but does it actually work well?
3: So, what I focus my writing around, um, and more broadly, not speaking just specifically to prosthetics, is how tech for disabled people um, is normally very well-intentioned and aligned with a couple of different interests in advancing a certain kind of high-tech technology, Mm -hmm. and yet isn't super focused on practical applicability for disabled people. Mm -hmm. And I think that high-tech hands are a perfect example of this, where it's trying to, in an extremely um, impressive way, Uh, replicate the human hand, look like the human hand, behave like the human hand. But ultimately, in a day-to-day practice, that's not what I need. That's not what a lot of people with limb difference need. Um, Most of the time, if you have a congenital um, limb absence like I do, um, you have another hand that is your primary hand. Um, And there are only a few very specific tasks in the day-to-day that are really, really two-handed tasks. And then for those kinds of tasks, you don't really need an $80,000 prosthetic arm. That hmm. was the, um, the, the, the sticker price for the arm that I got, which was um, covered pretty generously by my insurance, but not, not fully. Wow.
2: So what do you need then?
3: What we need for design for disabled people and design in prosthetics is a very, very close amount of attention given to the kinds of things that the user wants to do. And that doesn't start with a, an assumption that this person needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the, the mission of the prosthetic arm, the, the high-tech, the multi-articulating hand, um, is so focused on completing me, on giving me a hand again, on So um, so focused on fixing my body, making me whole, that it's not giving me the ability to articulate my needs specifically as they arise in the day.
2: So it feels like people don't understand how you accomplish tasks in a day. That seems kind of like step one for designers, right? Sure. Um, and you said there aren't a lot of truly two-handed tasks. So, so how, like, just going around in a given day, like, how do you accomplish, like, w- what do your,
3: your different limbs do? So um, I speak for, this is one of the few times where I can say, like, well, I speak for a lot of disabled people here. <laughs> um, we, uh, we do little adaptive hacks at home. There are um, lots of devices that we use, sometimes in their intended way and sometimes in their unintended way to accomplish some very basic day-to-day things. Um, Today, I am wearing um, a pair of sneakers and I swapped out the laces for elastic ones. A lot of runners use these laces. They're um, much easier to um, have on a day-to-day basis. And like, I didn't need to get um, a Maserati arm to tie these laces. Uh, This this was a $12 pack. Um, So basically my point is, There are um, so many different ways that disabled people figure out how to get the things done that they need done. And normally, um, that is with the help of a couple of different tools, different sort of bodily practices that we learn over time, sometimes with the assistance of others. And that is cheaper, more accessible, and honestly less ableist than sort of falling into the sort of logic of a prosthetic that's like, we have to complete you, we have to um, make you whole again.
2: Well, and you trace some of that, right, to the ways that people have thought about the human body, and even humans in general, and sort of what makes us special through time. And the, the hand turned out to be one of the things that people have landed on at some at some points in history.
3: Absolutely. Um, that, was, uh, that was an observation made by Ad Spears, who's the researcher that I interview in the IEEE spectrum piece. uh, And he was noticing that in prosthetics, there is just an overwhelming emphasis in research and development into creating these multi-articulating hands that are tens of thousands of dollars. And he believes that this kind of focus on always recreating that form, the human hand, is really limiting the possibility for prosthetics. And he was wondering to himself, why on earth do we do this? I mean, we, we could have, uh, he doesn't say this, but my friends always say this, we could have a tentacle arm. Um, one of the running inside jokes. Um, but we, we could have any number of different forms. Um, and through his research, what he found is that on a day-to-day basis, a lot of people who are miss, having, have a limb difference um, really need length more than anything. It's almost like most of the things that they accomplish could be accomplished if you for example, strapped a ruler to my arm to just have that length to hold open a door, to push, close a drawer, for example. Um, and he thought that this was just like really, um, really too much of an emphasis on recreating the human hand. It just limits design, it limits possibility. So,
2: you know, and one of the previous designs, like if you go back in the history of prosthetics, right? I mean, there's this, uh, it's the Hosmer hook, Right. What's your take on on a simpler technology like that, that is older, that doesn't try to recreate the hand, but that does gives length and it gives a little grip to it? Maybe you can describe it for people who
3: haven't. So um, one of the older prosthetic designs about 100 years now are called body-powered prosthetics. Um, they are not uh, electric Um, They are not powered through a bunch of sensors. You don't have to charge it. It uses a prehensor at the end of the arm. So um, there are a number of different grips, but um, uh, derogatorily, they're sometimes called claws um, or hooks. Um, Some kids get teased and called Captain Hook or whatever. Um, But this technology uses a wire that runs on the underside of the prosthetic arm and then adheres to the user's back. And so they use a very subtle shoulder movement to open and close the terminal device. And this was a, an option given to me when I was a child. And I think my parents found that a little funny and dated um, I think that the understanding at the time with this was like not at the cutting edge. That maybe um, I would get teased. It certainly looks really different. I think times are different now. Mm. Um, but I I wish that I was fitted with that. Huh. Actually, um, it's because instead you intuitive. got a hand. Hmm? Yeah,
2: instead you got one of these. In- instead
3: hands. I got the latest and greatest. But now I'm having a lot of questions about what makes it great.
2: Mm. How do you think your life would have been different if you'd been outfitted with that different tool?
3: Um, Well, maybe I would be less funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I don't don't think that my life would be substantially different. But, you know, I think that I would actually be more of a cyborg than I actually am. Because I've seen people who are extremely well adapted to the body-powered model, and they are so fast— It's so intuitive. It's like watching a teenager texting. It's like completely fluid, um, totally uh, uh, seamless communication with this device. And um, I think that what what Ad Spears noticed is that people who have these devices just have a lot more organic relationship with them.
2: So interesting. We're talking with writer Britt Young about her article and her, her general body of work here, but the article is The Bionic Hand Arms Race in IEEE Spectrum, and whether tech and media's focus on kind of whiz-bang prosthetics ignores the many disabled people who need access to inexpensive and reliable aids. We'd also love to hear from you. Do you have a disability, and what do people misunderstand about what you need? Maybe you've tried a high-tech prosthetic, and what's your experience been? give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. On Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, we're KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Again, we're talking with writer Britt Young about her article, The Bionic Hand Arms Race. And we want to hear from you if you have a disability and how people misunderstand. What you actually need. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more when we talk about cyborg stuff after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with writer Britt Young about her article, The Bionic Hand Arms Race, which is in IEEE Spectrum, and whether tech and media's focus on whiz-bang prosthetics ignores what disabled people really need. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have a disability? And if you do, what do people misunderstand about what kind of age you would like? Uh, have you tried a prosthetic, high tech or otherwise? And what's that experience been like? You can give us a call. Number is 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. I wanted to ask you you mentioned cyborg culture, <laughs> cyborgness. Um, and in some of your work, you've linked to a professor named Jillian uh, Weiss. And it was just this quote that she had really stuck with me. She said, "I worry that the cyborg is sometimes just a sexy way to say please care about the disabled." And why should I have to say that? Like how does that how did that land with you?
3: I think that the what has happened with the popular culture image of high-tech devices, high-tech prosthetics, is that there's kind of a little bit of a new expectation for disabled people to conform to this new cool, chic kind of fashion standard. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, And I think that film and TV has certainly contributed to this. Um, It certainly is a lot easier today to be a kid with a prosthetic arm when you can say, well, I'm just like Iron Man Mm -hmm. um, than it was for me to be a kid um 25 years ago um but i think that for one okay i don't want to overstate this everyone's a little bit of a cyborg we don't have to go into that um based on our relationship technology but i think that i or i'm concerned that the new aesthetic standard for disabled people to sort of conform to these expectations of wearing or using certain devices, especially when they're so expensive and so inaccessible and don't have an easy way to repair them, is um, a new sort of onus on people to not be their authentic selves.
2: Hmm. And I think, you know, what that that Jillian Weiss seemed to be saying, too, was just that, if you don't look this, if you don't approach your disability in this particular way and fit this aesthetic, then people won't care about you.
3: Absolutely, right? Or and I, you can tell from media coverage that um, the way that the latest high tech prosthetic arm is portrayed, it seems like there is an overwhelming emphasis that. Everyone needs to get one of these or at least like you wouldn't be cool if you didn't have one of these. And maybe I'm not cool. But um, what I want to do in my work is really just highlight this uh, this phenomenon that is occurring, how how this aesthetic expectation is operating and what that really means for when a disabled person is looking for a new tool in their lives.
2: Do you feel immune to the draw of that aesthetic?
3: No. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I mean, certainly a couple of years ago, I was like completely like in the you zone. You were like, in. Oh, like, I want this thing. Like, this thing looks super cool. And I mean, I had been waiting for so long. Too, because when I was a kid, uh, I got fitted with my first myoelectric hand, which um, just had open and close. Um, it looked rather lifelike. It had a silicone sleeve over it. It was an artist painted it to look exactly like my skin. Um, they imagined what my left hand would look like, uh, and it just sort of did a a, a claw like um, pinch, utterly useless, very heavy, um, especially sweaty in South Florida. Um, but it's Um, it's a, it's, it's been something that I've been waiting to really see develop. And then around 2017, 2018, they developed a model of the Bebionic hand that was suitable for children, which is kind of my size. So that's, (laughs) that's, that's when I was like, you know what, that's it. They finally, they finally did something really cool that's, that's substantially different than what I grew up with.
2: Oh, man. So how did you how did this thing come into your life? Like, what did you how did did you just like it, it shows up and you unbox it on a YouTube video or like what? what <laughs> oh, I just
3: ordered from a catalog. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. Um, you so prosthetics are a little bit like um, going to a car dealership. Hmm. So uh, a car, car dealership doesn't make the cars. They receive shipments of it. Um, but imagine more like a car dealership where everything needs to still be custom. So, they will buy the high tech hand from the German firm or the American firm that makes it. And then you have to go into your prosthetist to get a custom fitted socket. And a arm, a forearm or maybe an elbow, whatever setup that you need. Uh, and then they will attach that terminal device to the to the end. And this takes uh, quite a bit of time. There's a lot of patience, a lot of fitting. Um, for somebody like me, I'm, I'm a very, very difficult fit because I have an elbow, but I have almost nothing past that elbow. So when you put a socket on over that, it... Um, you want to make sure it stays on, but it severely limits the be- range of motion for bending.
2: So just listening to you describe this process, <laughs> knowing the American healthcare system is what it is, this cannot be a very accessible experience to that many people.
3: It's, it tends not to be. Um, and that's, that's really my, my primary concern. Um, finding a prosthetist is difficult. Um, there there are many of them, but finding the right one is difficult. Um, the time and energy it takes to travel there to get fitted multiple times is also very difficult. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's just this extraordinary cost and you don't know how your insurance is going to cover it. And insurance is extremely skeptical of high-tech arms. And I think I'm allowed to be skeptical of high-tech <laughs> arms. I think insurance should be extremely giving because people are... People want to try things. Mm -hmm. I think everyone should have a chance to try it, see if it works for you, and not just in an exclusively functional way. Maybe it works for your personality. I mean, Mm -hmm. glasses come in all (laughs) sizes, shapes, colors, expressions. Um, Prosthetics need to be more like eyeglasses. Um, They need to be accessible, but they also need to be um, kind of cool and fit your personality. Yeah.
2: Let's uh, take some calls. We have some good calls coming in. Uh, Susan in Sonoma, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, what, what's your experience, Ben?
5: Well, I, um, I'm an amputee, actually a double amputee, arm and leg. And when I first lost my arm, and I'm above the elbow amputee, so as your guest has described, that's a lot more difficult. But the first arm I was fitted with in the hospital where I had no idea about prostheses, was a myoelectric arm. And that was ridiculous. <laughs> As has said, all it could do was open and close the hand. I I went around the um, emergency ward or the ICU showing everybody my cool hand that I could open and close, but I could do nothing with that arm. Mm. And I remember the prosthetist saying, oh, this is a $100,000 arm. And I was like, well, it's useless. <laughs> and then I got a non-useful arm, which was really just for show, thinking I'd rather have the aesthetic of having an arm instead of rolling up my sleeve. Mm-hmm. But that was equally cumbersome and did nothing. So now I function in the world with no arm, but I do often get asked, are you ever going to get an arm? People can't quite understand why I'd be willing to go through life without
2: an arm. Susan, how does that make you feel when people ask you that?
5: Well, I'm pretty tough. You know, after you've lost two limbs and people stare at you and comment on you all the time, you develop a thick skin. So, it's, you know, I just answer the question and just tell them it's too hard, and I, I do just fine without.
2: Mm-hmm. Britt, anything you want to um, ask Susan about her experience?
3: Uh, thank you so much for sharing this experience. It's, it, sounds, it sounds pretty typical. Um, and. Yeah. The the excitement of having this really expensive and impressive looking technology in the moment running around the hospital and being like, look, look at this cool thing. And then the realization later on when you're trying to, like, open a jar. Right. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, Susan, thanks so much for for that call for sharing that experience, and um, I think it really tracks a, a lot, Britt, with the the other research that you have have found about how people use these things and whether they are helpful.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, um, maybe let's do let's do another call. Let's uh, go to Bill in San Francisco. Welcome, Bill.
0: Hi, my name is Bill, and I'm quite a bit older than your guest. I'm in my early 70s, and I was born with a short right arm. I've got three fingers and no left arm. And uh, I was also fitted with a prosthesis when I was a child, and it was the old kind of prosthesis with the hook. And quite frankly, I found that it actually inhibited the, my abilities to do things because it was heavy and awkward and uh It's much easier for you, as the guest was saying, to figure out ways you can do things yourself, either, you know, in my case, using my short right arm and my mouth and sometimes my feet. And when I was 17 and I was in college, I actually, when I moved from one living situation to another, I left my prosthesis in the closet. (laughs)
1: and
0: My mother was like freaked out. And it was just like a sign of liberation. I don't need this. This is who I am. You get what you see, you see what you get, and I'm perfectly fine about who I am as a person with a disability, and I'm actually someone who's been very involved with the disability rights movement for the last 40 years, and I think part of what the movement is about is about claiming who you are and feeling okay who you are. If you choose to wear a prosthesis, that's fine. If you're perfectly fine looking the way you look without a prosthesis, that's fine. I have no agenda either way. But I think our movement is the same as other movements where people have to claim their identities and feel okay about who they are, whether it's an issue of race or sexual identity or gender. I mean, it's all an issue of how we claim feeling we're okay who we are. Yeah.
2: That's a beautiful call. Thank you so much, Bill. For Thank that. you, Bill. Yeah. And, you know, Britt, I wanted to ask you that, I mean, do you see the work that you're doing exploring the realities of these kind of whiz-bang prosthetic hands as an outgrowth of the disability rights movement, which, I mean, you are in Berkeley, one of the major birthplaces uh, of the movement?
3: Yeah, I think think speaking out about a a tendency that sort of goes unquestioned is um, a, a central feature of social justice, no matter what aspect to it. And what I found in the media coverage of Design for Disabled People is that um, there's always this celebratory attitude. There's always this congratulatory tone to these pieces. Like it's incredible that you design this thing um, and now people are complete again. And it always sort of bothered me. And I felt like there wasn't a lot of room in the narrative for something that was more contrarian mm. for something that was more complicated mm. and um, m- more nuanced, something that said, yeah, I, okay, well I, I have a prosthetic arm. It's, it's fun on uh, trash day uh, only. Um, and then the rest of the time um, I would like to be me again, you know, yeah. like that's, that's, that's a, that's, that's a more difficult story to to funnel into the media, but yeah. it's, it's richer. It's, it's stranger. And, and I want to, um I want to bring some of those stories to light.
2: Yeah. You know your your other work does focus on these sort of tech tech deployment within marginalized communities and the way that sort of Silicon Valley tropes get exported into to other places. I wonder how much of the prosthetic hand problems that you've encountered are because of that kind of crossover with robotics and the desire that roboticists have to recreate the human hand and its sort of version of grip.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's a, Design for Disabled People is um, kind of a funny space because there are people who go into this career, um, engineers and designers of certain sorts, roboticists um, who may not necessarily be primarily motivated by Design for Disabled People. Um, they may be primarily motivated by a grant to explore what um, you can do with robotics. Um, and then there are different financial ties, of course, where develop research and development into a robotic hand of a certain kind could tangentially help disabled people, perhaps in limited capacity, but is ultimately more about um, a kind of trickle down relationship that ends up where this where the robotics end up in some um, secondary industry in in manufacturing or something like that. It just doesn't. um, There are just a number of different careers that kind of line up in the moment and some people who never intended to really get involved in um, prosthetics um may suddenly be involved in prosthetics based on the research that you're interested in.
2: How much do you think that the history of the military funding prosthetics, which I've learned about from your work, how much do you think that has influenced the design of these of these hands?
3: Extraordinarily. Mm-hmm. Um, in US history, each time there has been a substantial change in the design and execution of prosthetics, uh, this comes following a substantial military conflict where large numbers of soldiers are, one, um, surviving amputations in battle and coming home. And the U.S. government in those moments, like in the Civil War um, or, or after World War II, uh, put a lot of money into research and development and also into... P- basically startups, um, a number of different prosthetic firms that were all competing with each other and trying to come up with different designs and patenting them left and right. What's really interesting today is that the military still has an outsized impact on the design, the look, the feel, the advertising of prosthetic arms and legs. And yet very, very few military personnel are losing limbs. Um, few, uh, about 1500 soldiers have lost limbs in the entire, uh, war on terror for, for two decades, um, which is fewer than, uh, people like me who were born with a limb deficiency every year.
2: Uh-huh. Are, you know, it's interesting because it would seem that like what you're saying, I mean, a lot of designers of products want to make the thing that people like and want And clearly, I mean, just based on, you know, the the couple calls we took this segment and what you've said, the problems are kind of well-known. So why is it that the designs don't seem to take that into account? They don't seem to be lighter and and just focus more on length and and things like that.
3: I think because of insurance. Hmm. Um, These things are classified as medical devices and and. In the U.S., the uh, medical system is totally beholden to insurance and the profits that can accrue around insurance. And so it is a lot more profitable to have an $80,000 multi-articulating prosthetic arm that is a pain in the ass and you have to charge it and et cetera, et cetera, um, than it is to create something that is extremely simple, uh, something that may be just a, a Pieces, a couple pieces of polymer plastic um, that you can strap on with Velcro. Um, these these kinds of uh, hacks that disabled people are quite used to doing at home. Um, design in that respect is not very profitable.
2: Mm does come back to that so often uh, we are talking with the writer Britt young about her experience with a sort of whiz bang prosthetic hand and her work on tech and media's focus on that type of prosthetic and whether it ignores what disabled people really need uh we would love to hear from you do you have a disability and what do people misunderstand about what you need doesn't necessarily have to be about a prosthetic hand could be about some other form of assistive technology you can give us a call the number is 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 twitter facebook instagram it's kqed forum the email is forum at kqed.org i'm alexis madrigal we're talking with Britt young stay tuned for more right after this break Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with the writer, Britt Young, about her article, The Bionic Hand Arms Race and IEEE Spectrum. She also has a great one in Input Magazine if you want to check that out. All about how prosthetics do or do not help disabled people. Um, You know, I just wanted to get your thoughts. You know, Trish, one of our listeners, writes in to say, I noticed that your guest refers to people with physical disabilities as disabled people in recent decades there's been a move away from that practice to refer to people as maybe people with disabilities or physically challenged or differently abled. Uh, the aim was to move away from defining people by their disabilities, see them as people who have disabilities. Um, uh, I wonder how she feels about this. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit before the show, but thought maybe you could you could share your sort of view on, on this just for yourself.
3: Sure. Um, I don't have incredibly strong feelings about this. My tendency is to defer to others other people's strong feelings about this my understanding is that um, disabled can sometimes come across as a a bad word um, and people want to shy away from it and sometimes I will more often say disabled people um, because there's kind of an ownership there um, sort of uh, not making that a shameful category and some I, I've heard discussions about saying things like people with disabilities can m- make that sound like a qualifier in some way um, Personally, I think uh, it might be it might be splitting hairs at certain moments. Um, what I really want to do is just, champion disabled people's stories that kind of go against the grain and go against the dominant mer- narrative about um, people being saved or completed by prosthetic design and <laughs> things like that.
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I just wanted to give you a, a, a chance to lay that out for people Certainly. who might have been, been thinking about that. I um, want to talk a little bit about alternatives to these myoelectric prosthetic hands. Um, in, in particular, you've kind of maybe champion would be a little bit too strong, but you've talked about these kind of activity arms that let you do certain types of things that seem like kind of designed on an entirely different principle. Can you talk a little bit about those?
3: Absolutely. Um, So when when I was growing up in South Florida, the main activity I would do would be swimming. And I was fitted with what we just called a swimming arm. And a swimming arm was a what is called a passive prosthetic, so it didn't move. It didn't have any hinging parts or anything like that. Um, and it looked like a a left arm on a kid. Um, it was extremely naturalistic looking, and but it was it was designed in a way where it was like sealed around the top, um, and it was hollow in the middle, and um, it had a denser foam to it so that I could take it into the ocean and take it to the pool. What was funny about this thing is that the um, the guiding principle here is that this child needs to be left alone at the beach. She needs to look like everybody else, um, and she needs people to, to go into the water. We didn't say anything about swimming well. Um uh, we didn't say anything about making the right shape of the hand, right? Um, but I didn't know that uh, there were prosthetics to a lesser extent. Um, oriented around activities that are not so um, uh, n- not not so committed to recreating the human form and looking naturalistic and looking like you pass and looking like you're not disabled and actually focusing on that activity and these these terminal devices um, so like you you swap them out at the end mm-hmm. they accomplish different kinds of things different sports um, different. Um, hobbies at home, and they, they they don't look anything like the human body. They're just focused on the task.
2: Hmm. So it's like an instrument kit of different kinds of grips or or endings. So you could do things like kettlebell swings was one that you, they show you doing in the IEEE uh, Spectrum article.
3: Exactly. Um, a lot of people are familiar with uh, blades the, on, on legs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some athletes that have blades. And I think the principle there is that if if we weren't – if we didn't know anything about the human body and if we weren't interested in prosthetics um, serving the dual purpose of making you look normal, what would we design that was focused exclusively on this action? And the, the blades, people know about them because they're so successful. Um, they're so successful that some people think that it's cheating. <laughs> yeah. Um, and – to a far lesser extent this is true with upper limb prosthetics it's so it's so much more committed to just having a hand that um there is less of an opportunity to explore what kind of upper limb terminal devices might you have if they were just exclusively focused on the thing that you're doing
2: yeah. so interesting um let's bring in another caller uh daryl in cupertino welcome Hi. Good, good morning.
6: This is Daryl. You all can hear me?
2: Yes, we sure can. Go ahead.
6: Oh, okay, great. Well, I'm legally blind, so I'm not um, I'm not uh, a person that uses prosthesis. But, you know, your guest is making some very good points about the disabled community or people with uh, disabilities. And I also am an advocate for accessibility at, at my place of work. But I think uh, to sort of bring it home, there's a culture issue here about the, basically the challenge is that people that are – don't live in our world have a hard time understanding the world that we live in, especially those of us who are visually impaired or even maybe totally blind, maybe totally blind is a little bit easier. But nonetheless, the challenge is that. And then there's this whole culture thing that people have these responses. Um, She made the point about, you know, looking like another natural person versus the actual, you know, using a tool that would actually help her achieve her task. Right. I mean, that's, that's, an example of you know something is you know different about her so what's the deal about her being different she's achieving what she needs to do mm-hmm. same with assistive technologies that i use or that other people use and yet we still have a lot of resistance uh at least in our society about making things more accessible and by by the way her point up about the insurance company was you know spot on so yeah. i just wanted to make those comments. I really didn't have a question. I'm just... Oh, no, that's that.
2: great. No, we appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for
3: sharing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for
2: sharing your experience. You
6: yeah, know. yeah.
2: So, go ahead. Oh, yeah. You know, I was just going to say, Britt, you know, one of the big wins in the disability rights movement, the one that kind of everybody knows about, is like the curb cuts, right? mm-hmm. the little things coming down off the curb. Do you think that there are... there There's a similar kind of win possible in this realm of, of prosthetics, where you... Because... The thing that I find so fascinating about Crip Cuts, it's about really changing society. It's about changing the environment. It's about scaling solutions that end up helping lots of people who are moving through some kind of disability or, or not, just mm-hmm. mo- moving through the world in general. Um, and it seems like that's been just remarkably successful politically.
3: Mm-hmm. That's a that's an extremely important case because it's about public space. And I think that for people with limb difference and physical disabilities like my own, um, are, are really focused in accomplishing things at home and in private space. And what you're subjected to in private space is the design of products that you interact with on a day-to-day basis. And so there isn't, of course, a, a one-size-fits-all solution to this, but there needs to be accessible design at, at every level of, of product design. I mean, there isn't going to be a specific design that's going to work for everybody. Um, and technology, uh, digital applications are much better at um, anticipating the needs of different kinds of users. It's um, not limited by a physical design. You could do different settings and things like that. Um, but there needs to be a logic of accessibility at design at every level.
2: That's interesting. Um, Jessica tweets in to say, listener Jessica, I'm visually impaired and can't drive. This conversation is reminding me of the enthusiasm around self-driving cars for us, when what I would really love is more accessible, frequent, and reliable public transit.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think um, what I really want to highlight is the, the need for a public conversation about accessibility that doesn't put the onus on the disabled person to have an expensive technology that um, is extremely individualistic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, seeing somebody who has a specific need and yet is part of a community of shared needs and thinking, well, this person needs an $80,000 prosthetic arm or a $90,000 um, self-driving car is is not a way to bring disabled people into the public space
2: mm-hmm. or it only brings a very very narrow slice of those people it's true it's
3: it's as if um, the automotive industry uh, exclusively made luxury cars
2: mm-hmm. uh, let's bring in hari in fremont who who works in the tech industry welcome hari
0: Good morning. Thank you, Alexis, for the conversation and thank you, Ms. Young, for your work and perspectives here. Um, full disclosure, I'm not disabled. Uh, I work in the tech industry and I work with two extremely passionate uh, young women uh, who are trying to do disability representation in the digital world. For example, your avatars, what do you do for physical uh, disabilities? And one of the topics we are actively researching right now is prosthesis. So um, I first of all wanted to uh, you know, get your perspective on uh, do you think digital representation uh, and the next thing is, uh, what are some of the traps that we should not get ourselves into mm-hmm. when we try to go from practical to the fantastical as we try to you know, uh, enable different options on the digital realm? Hmm.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, Brent. yeah, yeah thank you for that, Hari.
3: Thank you. If you're interested in getting into prosthetic design, I think it's a... <laughs> It's 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 such an interesting thing to be to be fas- passionate about because you might already have ideas about the kind of thing that you want to build and you might already have ideas about the kinds of technologies and applications you want to apply um because maybe you're particularly good at a certain kind of design but where it has to start is really meeting the kinds of people you want to serve and seeing what they would like to do in the day to day that um cannot be achieved through um, si- simple accessible cheap hacks at home um, there's there's a project that i was aware of um, by a, a graduate student that did a um, cooking specific prosthesis for a friend of mine in canada and um, it was 3d printed so it's it's cheap it's plastic um, and it didn't need to do a custom socket design it was um, held together onto her um, residual limb with velcro and it was a a pliable plastic kind of like a a slightly curved ruler at the end and it turns out it was absolutely perfect for holding a a tiny clove of garlic while she minced it with her other hand (laughs) and then she was able to to swap that out for a, a magnetic attachment that would hold a spatula while she was moving the pan with the other hand and i think that this product, it looks really strange. Um and it looks cheap. And I think what's really cool about it is that it is the product of really listening to this person mm-hmm. who said, "You know what? I cook a lot. I'm I'm extremely good at it. Uh but there're just a couple of things I would and like I to do with two this. hands." Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. You know, I think Harry's other question was in the digital realm, like in, in making avatars, what traps they could fall into in trying to provide representation for people with disabilities uh, and and or their and their prosthetics in that kind of realm.
3: Mm-hmm. It's uh well, you're you're working against history, right? I mean, <laughs> the what I write in my piece is uh, about this overwhelming cultural. Expectation that a prosthesis should look a certain way, and Mm. it's so deeply ingrained, and it's uh, recapitulated and um, reinforced in film and TV media all over the place. And so it's kind of like looking at your personal biases, Mm. like what what are the ideas that I'm coming to the table with, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And how do you focus your design around this person and their set of needs, and not this? I mean, it's really you know, this is huge body of human history that you have to sort of work against
2: yeah we've got some great uh comments coming in kathy writes fascinating topic your guest makes excellent points true brit true on a slight tangent i would like to add that the promotion of whiz bang over engineered tech extends to most products consumer goods such as home appliances are designed to do more but not better medical instruments now often have dozens of mostly useless functions adding thousands to the cost it's like when your toaster has wi-fi you know oh, and sure you're like you're like really do i yeah, need yeah. that <laughs> yeah um and i assume you know this is a, a adjacent to your field of of professional study that you would you would agree with that
3: absolutely i think yeah. i mean there's a point at which um maybe a large number of products have reached their peak and and yet we need to keep selling them uh so they come back to the drawing board and they're like well let's make it pink (laughs) um but with with prosthetics i i think there, there there's so much room to grow we have really cool materials now we have carbon fiber it's super lightweight we have different kinds of plastics that are flexible um we have so many different materials we didn't have 100 years ago and yet we're not meeting that functionality principle
2: yeah um a couple other uh comments here mary writes as a child i observed that my uncle who had lost his left arm just below the elbow was able to do almost everything he wanted to do but he had an arm like a prosthetic arm he used in some social situations it did nothing it seemed intended only to make other people comfortable
3: yeah yeah i think that that is um a large reason why a lot of people like myself will have a few different prosthetic arms and um they one of them is maybe called a, a passive or I've heard some people call it their pretty arm. Um, and it's it's very lifelike. It's used in social situations. And it's true. I mean, the the principle of prosthetics is um, one of one of the basic things it's supposed to accomplish is to let you blend in and not be bothered. And for years and years and years, I wore a prosthetic just for this reason so that people wouldn't stop me at the grocery store or ask me questions. And I think, you know, there's nothing, of course, people choose to do this because that's the world we live in.
2: Right, right. Um, one, William actually has a practical question for you, which was, I've always wondered how easy or not it is to switch over time from one prosthetic to another. Can you switch back and forth between a simple and a high-tech one? And over time, if a new model's available, can your body handle it? Or has it been conditioned by the previous model?
3: Hmm, that is a good question. I think... Uh, that is entirely based on your fit. So hmm. for me, because I have an elbow and then not very much past that elbow, the way that I have to get into a socket can take a little bit of time. Um, hmm. I've tried a few different socket designs. Um, the most brutal one was when I was a kid and I would have to lather up my arm with lotion and then force it into a too small socket. Hmm. Um and then the lotion spills out of the sides. Ugh. It's this horrible, horrible experience. Um, but that was that was fast and uncomfortable. And now I have a more comfortable fit that uses a silicone liner, but it takes time. Um, so there's a you have to roll it up and twist on and tighten in. For my activity specific arm, it's a very specific fit. So I think that some people have body geometries that are more amenable to switching quickly.
2: Yeah. Last thing, uh, Sue writes: Is there a good, comfortable prosthesis? Shouldn't insurance stop paying these companies for useless ones and pay one hundred percent for good ones?
3: Sure. Uh, <laughs> I I don't know if there is a a holy grail prosthetic arm. I mean, like I had just said, it's it's very much contingent on your fit. Um, but what you find uh, in your life through daily practice, um, what fits best for you, what allows you to move more organically and naturally through life is is going to be the best one for you and sometimes you have to try a few and be really patient with it to figure out which one that is yeah.
2: we have been talking with writer Britt young about whether tech and media's focus on whiz bang prosthetics ignores what people with disabilities really need thanks so much for joining us Britt.
3: thank you so much i had a lot of fun
2: and thank you to my friend crystal who brought Britt's work Britt's work to my attention check out her podcast two cents plus tax. I'm Alexis Magical. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
1: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.